Today we are um, continuing the sermon series we kicked off right after Easter entitled First Encounters. Uh, and First Encounters, we're looking at the accounts, uh, the first encounters that individuals or groups of people had with Jesus after that first Easter, after Jesus uh, was risen from the dead. And in the passage that uh, Gage just read uh, out of John 20, it's often known as the Doubting Thomas story, and for obvious reasons. And, and you're probably figured out by now that the topic of the sermon today is a topic we don't always dig into in church, is the topic of, of doubt. Now, now, the Bible has quite a bit to say about doubt. In fact, there are certain books of the Bible that focus primarily on this issue of doubt. Why do certain things happen in the world in which we live? Why are things the way that they are? Where, where is God in the midst of this or that situation? For example, the book of Job. Job asks a lot of hard questions of God in the face of suffering, undeserved suffering and, and pain. The book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon asks questions about meaning and about purpose. Lamentations. Habakkuk, the Psalms, many of the Psalms, King David will, will ask questions of God. I'm, I'm in this difficult place, God. Show up. Help me. Why are you waiting so long? Uh, asking questions about why do good things happen to bad things and why do bad things happen to good people? You know, there's a reason that, the, that doubt is addressed in the Bible because it's a part of what it means to have the human experience, isn't it? I mean, we all have questions that are unresolved, How all have doubts about the way the world works, about maybe what God is doing in the world. Some people doubt God's existence, his goodness. To, to doubt uh, is to be a part of being a human being. We don't have the big picture in every area of our lives. Don't have all the, unre- don't have all the issues tied up nice and neat in a nice little bow. So the question is, what do we do with doubt? How does that intersect, intersect with, with faith and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And, and there have been times, of course, when I've had doubts. Most of those doubts have been answered, or questions answered, but there are still some, that, some questions that I will never have completely and 100% satisfied uh, until, until heaven. And so faith, if you think about it, faith by definition, requires doubt in order to be faith. We'll look at that in a little bit. But I would just say, if you ever arrive at a place in your life where all your questions are answered and all your doubts are gone, truly gone, then take a deep breath and relax because you're probably in heaven. Okay? (laughs) So doubt in itself is not sinful or wrong. It can often really be a a catalyst to new spiritual growth. God uses doubt sometimes to draw us deeper into an understanding of him and a greater trust and dependency upon him. Now, today, I should say real quickly, uh, this is not going to be an apologetic approach to doubt. What I mean by that is you 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 can approach doubt. Uh, looking for evidence in the scriptures, in creation, in science, in philosophy, in kind of moral theory and all those things. And there's some great things to discuss and consider. We don't have time to get into that today. If you have questions about that, I've got things you can read. I'd love to have a conversation with you. But I, in my experience, in the experience of, of many, many people, there are really profound reasons to believe out of all those areas to answer some of the doubts that we have. But what we're going to do instead is we're going to be looking at how does doubt impact our faith? How can it grow our faith? And what do we do when we run into doubts 
and, and, question, and questions that aren't resolved in our lives. So begin, I want to, I'm going to break down doubts into three broad categories. There's intellectual doubts. And those are doubts that are often raised by people outside the church, not only, but often by people outside the church. Questions like, is the Bible the word of God? How do we know it's not just some book thrown together? Um, is there really a God? Is Jesus the son of God? If there is a God, is he the son of God? Did he really rise from the dead? Uh, th- those sorts of doubts are raised by uh, certain books that are being out, uh, that are out there, like the Da Vinci Code or the so-called Gospel of Judas, or by writers, new atheists like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. Next category, are the, there, are, there are spiritual doubts. And these tend to be doubts that come from within the church. And questions like, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Why is it so hard to pray? Why do I still feel guilty? Why is it taking me so long to change? Why do I still struggle with the same things? And if I do, is this all true or is it a fantasy? Third, there are circumstantial doubts. And these, this is the largest category because it encompasses all the whys of life. Why did my child die? Why did my marriage break up? Why can't I find a spouse? Why did my friend betray me? Why did I get sick? Where was God when that person was abusing me? Questions like that. And those are the questions we meet at the intersection of biblical faith and living in a broken and fallen world filled with broken and fallen people like you and me. In my experience, these can be the toughest doubts of all. And sometimes our tendency in the church is to just try to sweep them under the rug and, and not really struggle with them. But when we refuse to deal with them and wrestle with issues in our lives and questions and grapple with those things, as the biblical uh, authors did so often... When we refuse to deal with those circumstantial doubts, they can become spiritual doubts. And then those spiritual doubts can become intellectual doubts. And then people can start to leave the church and the faith. So as we approach this topic, there are several things we need to understand up front. First, many people think doubt is the opposite of faith, but it is not. Unbelief is. Unbelief refers to a willful refusal to believe. Doubt refers to inner uncertainty. Okay? There's a distinction. Secondly, many people think doubt is unforgivable, but it is not. God does not condemn us or reject us when we question him. Both Job and David repeatedly questioned God, but they were not condemned. God is big enough to handle our doubts and our questions. Thirdly, many people think struggling with God means we lack faith, but that's not true. Struggling with God is a sure sign that we truly have faith. You don't wrestle with something if it's already resolved in your mind that it doesn't exist. If we never struggle, our faith will never grow. Now, for some reason, faith seems to come more easily for some people than others. Some people, it's easier for them to believe than others. I don't know why that is. Perhaps it's the personality or the the way they're wired or their background, their experiences that they've had with the church or with people or or misunderstandings they have about God or or wrong teachings. 
But for some reason, faith seems to come easier for some. They're looking for reasons to believe, where other people it comes harder. They're looking for reasons not to believe. I guess one thing I need to say to that is we should, we need to be careful about trying to compare our experiences with others spiritually. Just because somebody doesn't wrestle with doubts very often doesn't mean because that we do, perhaps, that there's something wrong with us. God wires us each differently in different ways. So let's, let's dig in and see what this story has to teach us about doubt and the intersection with faith with the, in the Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. So, uh, so in John 20, Jesus has appeared to all the disciples, except for Thomas. We don't know where he was uh, when Jesus appeared the first couple of times, but he wasn't around. And so we pick it up in verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, I can see why he'd go by Thomas. Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are, were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas is a skeptic. His friends have said, we've seen him, we've experienced him, we've talked to him, we've touched him. He's talked to us. But he, he can't believe it. He wants to believe it, but he just can't get there. He wants to believe that the last three years of his life haven't been a waste of time. He wants to believe, but for whatever reason, he's not wired that way. He just can't. He needs more. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now notice what Jesus does and says. Jesus obviously knows what specific doubts Thomas has. Everybody has different doubts, right? He knows, this, he knows specifically what Thomas's doubts are. We can see that by how he responds. Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Jesus doesn't scold him. He doesn't avoid him. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't treat him as second class. Rather, Jesus does what? He invites Thomas to bring his doubts to him, to test his doubts against the risen Jesus. So what's this have to say to us? Well, whatever the scope and nature of our doubts, Jesus knows them specifically. And he's not going to reject us because of them. Instead, he invites us to bring our doubts to him, to wrestle with him, to engage with him, to, to look at the word, to pray, to wrestle with him, to bring those to him and to pursue him more, to go deeper with him. Because doubt has its purposes. Deep doubt is often the prelude to an even deeper faith. I love the way that Frederick Beekner um, expresses it. He writes, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Anybody itching right now a little bit? You know, it, it's, it's interesting in that some of the greatest doubters often become some of the, the greatest believers. You see that time and again throughout church history. For example, you know, in, our, in the last century, C.S. Lewis, 
avowed atheist, became a believer. Um, Peter Hitchens, brother of Christopher Hitchens, the avowed atheist, he became a believer. Francis Collins, um, scientist, avowed atheist, became head of the Genome Project and through his studies of DNA and, and the complexity of it and, and the impossibility it could just all sorts of things. He became a believer and has written about it and is a believer now. So honest doubts, once resolved, often can become the bedrock of an unshakable faith. If those doubts aren't grappled with and wrestled with, sometimes that faith can be a little bit more easily shaken. It's been said that no truth is so strongly believed as that which you once doubted. Os Guinness once wrote, the shame is not that people have doubts, but that they're ashamed of them. So faith is not stepping forward without doubt or uncertainty. Faith is stepping forward in the midst of doubt, in the midst of uncertainty. But you might be asking the question, why does it have to be this way? Why does doubt seem to be a part, why does it seem to be a part of the Christian faith? Why doesn't God make it easy and just answer all our questions? Give us total certainty. Help us believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. Wouldn't that be a whole lot easier? Let me try to answer that question this way. I want you to know that in my right pocket I have a $10 bill. I know you can't see it, but I'm asking you to trust me that it's there. You can take my word for it. So who here believes that I have a $10 bill in my pocket? Anybody? There's a few hands. Some of you know me, so you're like, ah, I'm not sure. Okay. That's why I need a sabbatical, I guess. I don't know. But those of you who raised your hand, why did you raise your hand? Well, hopefully because you know me. We've had a relationship of trust. You think I'm going to tell you the truth and, you know, I might kid around, but I'm going to tell you if it's something serious, I'll tell you the truth. So it's based upon our history and our relationship, your experience with me. Well, that's faith. What you're doing is you're weighing the evidence you have and you're taking a well-informed step forward. But now watch, I'm going to destroy your faith. I do have a $10 bill in my pocket. How does that destroy your faith? As soon as I show you what's in my hand, you don't have faith anymore. You have certainty, total certainty. You have knowledge, absolute knowledge, which does not require faith. So if I put it back in my pocket and I ask you now, how many of you believe that it's there? You're going to believe me with total certainty. No longer is faith needed. No longer do you have faith based upon our relationship of trustworthiness and my history with you. You don't have to trust me anymore. Knowledge and certainty and experience will suffice and faith is not needed. Well, for his own reasons, God has not allowed us to see things with absolute certainty to follow without any trace of doubt. And though I don't know God's reasons for requiring faith, I have a hunch that one of these reasons has to do with trust. Could it be that God only wants us to place our trust completely in him? And while knowledge and experience and reason, all these other things can be a great help in our pursuit of God and in helping us to have faith. Ultimately, God doesn't want us to place our faith in those things, 
but in him and in his faithfulness. So hear this. I think that what's most important in the end is not even the amount of faith that you have or don't have. Ultimately, what's most important is in what or in whom you place your faith. In the book, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel, who was an atheist, is now a believer, an author, speaker, uses this illustration about faith. He says, most Canadians understand that there are two kinds of ice. There's thick ice and there is thin ice. Okay. He says, and you can have enormous faith in thin ice and still end up drowning. But you can have very little faith in thick ice and it will hold you up just fine. In other words, you can strut out onto that thin ice with absolute certainty that it will hold you up and it won't matter a bit. You'll still fall through. And yet, even if you're filled with so little faith that it takes you a couple hours to take the first couple steps out onto, the, onto that thick ice, it doesn't matter how little your faith is, the ice will still hold you up as long as you step out onto it. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Jesus said this regarding faith. One day he was talking to his disciples who were confused and doubting his plan and purposes. And he said, even if you have the even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a tiny, tiny seed, not very much faith. He says, even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, even then you can move mountains and then nothing will be impossible for you. So it's not the amount of faith you have. We are to grow our faith. Don't misunderstand me. Hopefully our faith is bigger and deeper and stronger today than it was five years ago, right? But the important thing is that you have some faith. The important thing is what you place that faith in. I mean, we can have absolute certainty that our worldview is correct. For example, atheism. But it's not your certainty that's important. An absolutely certain atheist still falls through the ice if, in the end, God does happen after all to exist. On the other hand, if your faith in Christ is small, but it exists, and it might be hounded by you know, uncertainties, difficult things in your life, difficult things in the lives of your loved ones, questions that are unresolved, if in the midst of these doubts you take a, a small baby step of faith, toward Jesus, and after Jesus, I believe the ice will hold. I have bet my life upon that, that when all is said and done, the ice will hold. Think about this. In the New Testament, the word faith is, is, is seen and viewed as, as a verb. It's an action word. It always involves stepping forward. In fact, the Bible says what? Faith without action is a dead faith. So faith is not just belief. It's not just mental assent. It's stepping forward in trust in the midst of doubts and uncertainties. And yes, even some unresolved questions that we have. Faith is continuing to pray even when we don't hear anything back from heaven, seemingly, because we trust God when he tells us that he always hears and that he always cares and that he will respond according to his will. Faith is being generous with our resources when it doesn't make sense economically to do so because we trust God when he tells us that we're actually blessed more when we give than when we receive. 
Faith is obeying God's laws when it's the last thing we want to do because we trust God that when he gives us the command, it's not because he's a cosmic killjoy, but it's because he loves us and for our own benefit and flourishing. Faith is treating our enemies with love because we trust Jesus when he says that revenge and bitterness will ultimately consume our souls. Faith is enduring tragic times in life with hope because we trust Jesus when he says that we can have peace and joy no matter the circumstances. And in the end, it's the faithfulness of God ultimately that will hold us up. And Jesus Christ, who is the author and the object of our faith, does not fail us when we step forward. Ephesians 2.8 says this about faith. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. This is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God. So in the midst of the doubts and the uncertainties and the unresolved questions in our lives, if we continue to wrestle with God, to persevere, to bring those doubts to Jesus, to continue to move forward in faith, because ultimately it's about what do we place our faith in? Who do we place our faith in? Because he will hold us up in the end. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We confess, Lord, that there are so often times that we place our faith in something else or ourselves. Uh, But Lord, you want us to be people of faith. We thank you for the evidence uh, around us of your existence and your love and care. And the things that are unresolved, Lord, we commit ourselves to to pursuing you, to wrestling with those things, to persevering, and to continue to move forward in faith. So, Lord, when we struggle with unbelief, Lord, help us in our unbelief as the woman prayed in the Gospels. Help us, Lord, to, to trust you, to grow deeper. And we trust in you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.